Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. It is a great joy this autumn morning to welcome you to Marsh Chapel, whether you are here in person, listening live over the radio at 90.9 WBUR, or over internet signals at WBUR.org, or listening later to the podcast at bu.edu chapel. It is a special joy to greet you this morning as we begin our periodic Howard Thurman Preacher Series, and so too to welcome to the pulpit Jennifer Quigley, Chapel Associate for Vocation and Discernment here at Marsh Chapel. Jen has worked in the Thurman Archives here at Boston University, has worked on the Howard Thurman Papers Project, and is a doctoral student at Harvard Divinity School, having completed her Master of Divinity degree at the BU School of Theology last spring. We welcome her to the pulpit this morning in the partnership of the gospel. Now let us stand as we are able in the praise of God.
Let us pray. Grant us, Lord, not to be anxious about earthly things, but to love things heavenly. And even now, while we are placed among things that are passing away, to hold fast to those that shall endure. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated. As we turn our hearts to confession, hear these words of Howard Thurman. Lord, open unto me. Open unto me light for my darkness. Open unto me courage for my fear. Open unto me hope for my despair. Open unto me peace for my turmoil. Open unto me joy for my sorrow. Open unto me strength for my weakness. Open unto me wisdom for my confession. Open unto me forgiveness for my sins. Open unto me love for my hates. Open unto me thyself for myself. Lord, Lord, open unto me. Let us confess our sins in silent prayer during the singing of the Kyrie. Dearly beloved, let us remember that when we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thanks be to God. 
A lesson from St. Paul's Epistle to the Philippians, chapter 1, verses 21 through 30. For to me, living is Christ and dying is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which I prefer. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you. Since I am convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in faith, so that I may share abundantly in your boasting in Christ Jesus when I come to you again. Only live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that, whether I come and see you or am absent and hear about you, I will know that you are standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side with one mind for the faith of the gospel, and are in no way intimidated by your opponents. For them, this is evidence of their destruction, but of your salvation. And this is God's doing, for he has graciously granted you the privilege not only of believing in Christ, but of suffering for him as well, since you are having the same struggle that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. The word of the Lord.
Please join me in saying verses from Psalm 105 with the Antiphon. of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wonderful works he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of the servant Abraham, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. Then he brought Israel out with silver and gold, and there was no one among their tribes who stumbled. Egypt was glad when they departed, for dread of them had fallen upon it. He spread a cloud for a covering, and fire to give light by night. He opened the rock, and water gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river. For he remembered his holy promise, and Abraham his servant. So he brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing. He gave them the lands of the nations, and they took possession of the wealth of the peoples, that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Praise the Lord. Let us stand together for the singing of the Gloria Patri and the reading of the Gospel. Thank you. 
Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Matthew, chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. Glory Glory to you, O Lord. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for the usual daily wage, he sent them into his vineyard. When he went out about nine o'clock, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and he said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. When he went out again about noon and about three o'clock, he did the same. And about five o'clock, he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, Why are you standing here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, You also go into the vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, Call the laborers and give them their pay, beginning with the last and then going to the first. When those hired about five o'clock came, each of them received the usual daily wage. Now when the first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received the usual daily wage. And when they received it, they grumbled against the landowner, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? Take what belongs to you and go. I chose to give to this last the same as I gave to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I'm generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Please be seated. Howard Thurman was the dean of Marsh Chapel from 1953 to 1962. And when he took that post, he became the first African-American dean at a predominantly white university. Howard Thurman's name and legacy are well honored here at Marsh Chapel. We are very proud of our Thurman heritage. Come Sunday, whether you're tuning in on the radio, listening on the podcast, or sitting in the pews at 735 Commonwealth Avenue, you will often hear Howard Thurman's words sounding forth from this pulpit. You will hear him quoted in prayers, in sermons. After worship, if you choose, you can visit Howard Thurman's portrait downstairs in the room that bears his name. Some of you may know that Dean Hill has even developed something of a Marsh Chapel mantra about Thurman. You will often hear him say that Howard Thurman was 100 years ahead of his time 50 years ago. It is good that we remember and listen to Thurman's words, but there's something missing when we encounter just these echoes of Thurman. We miss out on the unique sound of Thurman's voice, his speaking voice, which so perfectly fits his personality, his person, his life, and his very soul. 
This morning, I want to share with you a small recording of Thurman speaking, reading from Meditations of the Heart. Floating up through all the jangling echoes of our turbulence, there is a sound of another kind, a deeper note which only the stillness of the heart makes clear. It moves directly to the core of our being. We wait. Thurman, as you can hear, has a truly unique speaking voice. His is a deep and resounding bass, particularly when praying, meditating, or telling stories which really hit home. Very few people speak that low in the range of the human voice, and so when I first th th heard Thurman's speaking voice, I was reminded of my paternal grandfather. My grandfather passed away when I was quite young, but I can still hear the echoes of his voice in my mind, that deep resounding bass vibrating my whole body. That voice chuckling after cracking a joke in the middle of grace at the dinner table, or captured on a record, a single moment in time, singing a duet at my parents' wedding. Thurman's voice is, of course, different from my grandfather's. It is uniquely his. But it, too, is a moment in time captured for us to hear today. It's oddly reedy for a bass, and when Thurman gets a little excited, you can almost picture him rising up to the balls of his feet and grasping the pulpit and leaning into the microphone. It doesn't happen in this short clip, but when Thurman really gets warmed up, his voice soars up the scales like the opening notes of Rhapsody in Blue, reaching almost a falsetto range. Howard Thurman had his own carefully developed deeply discerned voice. Coming up to converse with Thurman this morning, we have our gospel lesson from Matthew, the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, only found in that gospel. The parable of the laborers in the vineyard is colloquially known, of course, as the parable of the totally unfair vineyard owner. You mean that the people who sneak into that last pew just before the sermon and then in their return down the side aisles after communion go right past their pew and right back out the back door? Those people? Those people earn the same kingdom of heaven wages, the same good deed credits as those who sit all the way through from the introit to the very last note of the postlude all the while with their hands politely folded in their laps, never looking backwards, always facing forward? Yes. That would seem to be something of the meaning of Matthew's parable. That's what the kingdom of God looks like in this parable of the generous, some might mutter under their breath, socialist landowner. In this parable, if there is a divine accounting system of any kind, it is not measured by our standards. Everyone's work, everyone's participation, everyone's voice is of deep value to the landowner. But still, the generosity of the parable vineyard owner really grates at us, particularly in our politically charged climate. In this country, in our attempts to cure our extended illness of financial fear, we have become addicted to a vocabulary of scarcity. Our attitude has become, there cannot possibly be enough for all, so I better take my share before someone else does. We secretly, and as we saw in the Republican debate last week, sometimes even openly cheer those people who through some combination of choice and circumstance might lose their job, their house, or even their life. 
We cheer because we're secretly hoping that if another loses, we might have a job, or a house, or the care that we need for life. This mass mentality leads to high emotions, which have become so deeply ingrained in us that we can't cut through the dense opiate fog to hear the parable in our gospel this morning. And in it, the voice of the evangelist, and behind him, the voices of the earliest Christian communities, and behind them, the voice of Jesus. So I'd like to retell the parable using a setting perhaps a bit more familiar and a bit less infuriating than the one found in our gospel this morning. There once was a senior professor, a real giant in her field, and she offered an advanced seminar to work through some final edits of her book before she sent it to press. Her two advisees, doctoral students who were finishing up their dissertations, were the only two to show up that first week of the seminar. They engaged with their professor in spirited debate, and the professor thanked them for their contributions and made some edits based on their responses. The doctoral students went away well pleased. The next week, they were a little surprised to find a master's student sitting at the table. I invited her because I really wanted to include some more voices in the conversation so I can really hone my work, the professor explained. Two weeks after that, past the allotted ad drop deadline set forth by the university, a timid young woman came into the classroom for the seminar. She was a freshman and had been invited to unofficially audit the course. I invited her because I wanted to hear an undergraduate's take on my argument, the professor said. The freshman was shy at first in front of the graduate students, but with some coaxing, she opened up and shared her opinions. The weeks went by, but the second to last week of the semester, everyone was shocked to see the professor escort in one last person who is wearing one of those plastic vests that people who solicit money on the street for some charity or political organization often wear when they cost you. Donor clipboard still in hand, the young man took a seat and confusedly accepted the chapter of discussion for the week from the professor, who explained to the seminar that she was thinking on her way to class about what people on the ground would actually think of her book. So, she said, this fine young man introduced himself to me on the street and I thought he would be perfect. The man spent the whole seminar just reading the chapter and listening, and by the end he had only made one single brief comment. The last class, the professor comes in with a copy of her final manuscript in a binder and a huge grin on her face. I want to thank you all for the help that you've provided me this semester, she says. My book would not be as thorough, as thoughtful, or as articulate as it is without you. I've brought you my manuscript to show you that I have thanked you all, every single one of you, by name and my acknowledgments. The doctoral students were appalled. What might it mean to prospective employers when some nobody's name was listed next to theirs in the introduction to what was sure to be the next big work in the field? Besides, they had been there from the first, engaging with the professor's use of secondary sources, questioning her larger methodological choices. What really had that master student, that freshman, and especially that solicitor off the street really done to deserve equal billing? The professor answered, 
you are both emerging scholars in the field. And you each have a more developed sense of your own scholarly voice. But I needed to hear each of the voices that came to the table to truly understand what my final book needed to look like. Each of the voices in that seminar, even from that young man off the street, was essential to my completed work. Now, parables are extended similes, as you learned in high school. Similes compare something to something else using like or as. The object of comparison throughout the Gospels and parables is nearly always the kingdom of God, that elusive eschatological term. The kingdom of God is like a vineyard owner who goes out to offer work to all and pays them equal wages. The kingdom of God is like a professor who invites all voices into her classroom and gives them equal recognition. We're so used to hearing parables that we hardly pay attention to the first side of the equation, that whole kingdom of God part. But it is essential to our understanding of the parable. The kingdom of God is an eschatological catchphrase. Eschatology is a word that has a tendency to make people nervous. It conjures up images of pamphlet-wielding, billboard-buying doomsayers on the one hand, and theologians squinting over dense, boring, difficult theological treatises on the other. What a strange phenomenon. What other word brings up such disparate images to mind? Earlier this semester, New Testament scholar Helmut Kester introducing a lecture on the history of ancient Christianity to a mixed classroom of underclassmen and graduate students, promised that the class required absolutely no background in the field. In the middle of his lecture, he came to the word eschatology, and he glanced up, and he saw some furrowed brows from the undergraduates, so he stopped and he said, eschatology is simply living in the present with a certain hope of the future. Eschatology is simply living in the present with a certain hope of the future. With this clear-as-a-bell definition, our eschatological vision can expand to include all sorts of people we can imagine who live that way. College students come to mind. College students labor away on their laptops in libraries and laboratories. They take on significant debt, work second jobs, all in the hope of a certain kind of future. Now, college students can sometimes live extreme manifestations of their eschatology. Some live so deeply in the present because they want to ignore their fears about the future. They fear the future will include an abrupt entry into the real world where they believe there will be less fun, more seriousness, and earlier alarm clocks. Others focus so intensely on a future vision of success that they fail to become involved in their present surroundings missing out on life-transforming experiences, friendships, community service, and student life. But when we welcomed our freshman class at matriculation just a few short weeks ago, we welcomed in young people who entered into Boston University with their eyes wide open, taking in their new, exciting, and sometimes terrifying surroundings. They have certain hopes that here they will discover something about who they are and who they are called to be. They have certain hopes that here their voices will be heard. And they have certain hopes that someday they will make a difference in the world. In short, they seek to find 
and then to share their own voice. Will we invite them into the conversation? Will we encourage their first attempts to speak out? Will we encourage them to try out a different tone, a different pitch? Will we encourage them as they try to understand their own unique voice? No seminar is too advanced, no economic problem too serious, that we cannot include the nascent voices of those who will in the future, in the very near future, teach our seminars and run our companies. Besides, if we are honest with ourselves, we are always in the process of developing and discerning our own voice. It's shaped by the voices of others, and it is shaped in the stillness when we listen for the voice of God. Only in the full chorus of voices not our own are we best able to tune in to our own sound, to correct its pitch, to round out its tone. We are continuously in need of discerning our own voice. Howard Thurman's deepest commitments were to these values, to his firm belief that we are not complete, that we are not whole until we have begun to understand ourselves. And we cannot understand ourselves, Thurman believed, until we open ourselves to hear the voices of our neighbors and until we open ourselves to hear the voice of God. That, Thurman believed, was the very definition of freedom. In 1948, speaking at the meditation hour of the National Council of Negro Women's Convention, he said this, the highest role of freedom is the choice of the kind of option that will make my life not only a benediction breathing peace, but also a vital force of redemption to all I touch. This would mean, therefore, that wherever I am, there the very kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God paints a vision of how we are to live in the present if we have a certain hope for the future. We are to live our lives in the hope that someday this world will be like a ripe vineyard where all are invited to work at the harvest. We are to live our lives in the hope that someday this world will be like a classroom where all voices are truly welcome at the table. Eschatology is not about doing nothing while we wait for this future to come. Rather, we are called to live in the right now as though it were already so. If we make space for the still discerning voices around us to try, to speak up, to fail and fall down, and to try again, if we make space for the still discerning voices around us to seek out their own most selves, then we embody that vision of the kingdom. In June 2011, National Geographic published an article by Charles C. Mann about Gebekli Tepe. It's an archeological site in southern Turkey, which had remained relatively unknown in the West up until then. Gebekli Tepe is an old site. It is really old, really, really old, older than old. It is the oldest structural site in the world. It's beautiful, it has circles of pillars with fascinating representations of human figures and animals. Gazelles, scorpions, foxes, they're all carved into the stone. It was built, archeologists estimate, 
11,600 years ago. That's 7,000 years before the Pyramid of Giza. Gebekli Tepe is not a palace. It's not a military outpost. It's not even a community dwelling of some sort. It is a religious site. There's a traditional narrative about human development. It goes something like this. Once our ancestors had settled down, domesticated some animals and some basic grains, once they stopped having to wander around constantly looking for food, that's when civilization emerges. That's when we get art, music, and religion. We only turn to questions of meaning when questions of survival are already settled. Gebekli Tepe is leading many scholars to turn that narrative on its head because this site predates the domestication of livestock and predates the cultivation of crops. Our hunter-gatherer ancestors, it seems, turned to questions of meaning, questions about who they were and how they related to the universe well before they had figured out that whole settled living thing. I am certain that Howard Thurman, with his incessant cultural and scholarly curiosity, would have loved the story of Gebekli Tepe. And I think Thurman, most of all, would have agreed with the position that it forces us to consider. Thurman believed that questions of who we are and who we are called to be in relation to the universe are not afterthought questions. They are not something to turn to once the schoolwork is done, once the week is over, once the kids are in bed. No, these questions are an essential part of life, as important as our sleeping, our eating, and even our breathing. May we hear the echoes of Thurman's voice. Thurman believed that when we turn to questions about ourselves, we naturally turn inward to listen for the voice of God, and outward for the voice of God in our neighbors around us. May we hear the echoes of Thurman's voice today. But most of all, Thurman believed that when we invite all, all to labor beside us in the vineyard or in the classroom, we embody the kingdom of God and become a blessing of peace and redemption for the world. May we hear the echoes of Thurman's voice today. Amen.
please be seated. Friends, we pause now to take the time to offer our prayers to God. You may sit, stand, kneel, or come to the altar rail as according to your tradition. Now please join me in singing, Lead Me, Lord. O God, in you we live and move and have our being. You have blessed us with a gift of life and a world to live in. In you we are blessed and we offer praise and thanks. Empower and strengthen the witness of your church throughout the world that true to its calling, it may embody your radical and boundless love. Strengthen all the members of the body of Christ Grant that our service and witness in this and every land may be full of faith and love. You are the source of life, O God. May we embrace our lives and the lives of others with courage and compassion, unafraid of joy and pain, sickness and health. May your care be made known in our care. May those who govern the nations of the world use their authority with wisdom, kindness and peacefulness. Awaken in them a thirst for justice that embodies your care for this earth and for the human community. Rescue those who suffer poverty, injustice, or oppression. Open the ears of our hearts to hear and quicken in us the fire to respond in love. Grant comfort, healing, and release to those who suffer illness, distress, or grief. Awaken in us boundless compassion and use us as agents of loving kindness. In your love and compassion, hear the prayers of your people. Enliven us by your spirit to live into the fullness of your reign. We pray through Jesus, our life and our hope. And now we join together in saying the prayer that your son taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.
The peace of the Lord be always with you. We greet you once again this morning and hope that you will take a moment to put your name and contact information in the red books found along the center aisle of each pew. Pass it along to your neighbor so that we can get to know you better and help you get to know one another better throughout the coming week. We would note coming up this week is an opportunity on Wednesday evening for those of you who are considering how, what shape your voice will take uh, and what it has taken in the past and how that influences what, voice, what your, the shape of your voice will be in the future. To join us on Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. downstairs in the Thurman Room for BU, Vocation Care. That's B-E-Y-O-U. And uh, do come out. It's a program focused around the works of Howard Thurman. We would note also that on Saturday, the Servant Team, our Undergraduate Student Leadership Council, is planning an apple-picking trip. You can join us on the plaza at 9.30 in the morning to take buses out at 10 p.m. or 10 a.m. And uh, we hope you'll come. The cost for that is $10. Please RSVP at servants at bu.edu. For a note about next Sunday's service, we welcome our music director, Dr. Scott Allen Jarrett. Good morning. Last Sunday, I spoke to you about our new artist and ensemble in residence, Lorelei, a group led by a woman, sung by women, and focusing on the music of women, and in particular, the music of living composers. The Marsh Chapel Choir is also focusing this year on the music of living composers. We also will continue our uh, annual observance of the Bach Cantatas. This is our fifth annual series of Bach Cantatas, and we begin right away next Sunday with Cantata 149. Also, uh, the cantata will be performed in the worship service in the 11 o'clock hour, so you'll hear it. It'll also be on the radio. But the Bach experience will begin at 9.45 a.m. in this room. The Collegium, our orchestra, the chapel choir, and I will spend about 30 minutes speaking with you about the piece that you'll hear, explaining some of the intricacies of the music, and some of its theological context. Then we'll have a moment for fellowship downstairs so that you can meet and greet with the musicians and talk to them about their experiences with music and with Bach. The chapel choir is off to a great start this year. We've had two rehearsals and three services and, uh, and are right, ready to go with Bach for next Sunday. So we'll look forward to seeing you next Sunday morning at 9.45 here in the nave of Marsh Chapel. Thank you, Scott. One other note for next Sunday is that following the service at noon will be a reception for Elizabeth Fomby Hall, our recently uh, moved on uh, director of hospitality. Elizabeth has moved to Oklahoma with her husband, who is a military chaplain there. We welcome this week Rachel Cape, our new director of hospitality, and will have opportunity for further welcome in coming weeks. We encourage you to keep an eye on the chapel website, bu.edu chapel, for upcoming services and activities, along with the opportunity for online giving. Now walk in love as Christ loves us, an offering and sacrifice to God.
gracious Lord, thank you for the bounty before us, and may it be used according to your service. Amen. and live lives of benediction, breathing peace. May you bring the vital force of redemption to all that you touch. And wherever you go, may the kingdom of God be at hand. Amen. Amen.